You're listening to Around Comics, episode 144. Thank you for listening to another Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour of comic book news and information. Coming up on today's episode, I talk with writer Christos Gage. Among other projects, he's the writer that is bringing us back to Marvel's House of M. We get you ready for the week ahead with new single-issue trade paperback and DVD releases. Tom Caters is back as the Answer Man. John Mayo, Will Pfeiffer, and Jeremy Mullins are back with their regular segments. And to wrap things up, Scotty files an audio A-bomb for his weekly rant. All that and more is next on Around Comics. This episode of Around Comics is brought to you by Borders. Sink your teeth into the story that introduced the world to Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter. Get your copy of Guilty Pleasures by Laurel K. Hamilton at your local Borders. Borders is your home for the tastiest fantasy novels. Find a store near you at BordersStores.com. Christos Gage is an accomplished TV and movie writer, but if you ever have the chance to talk with him, it becomes pretty apparent that his heart lies with comic books. Gage has been the writer behind some of the best and most interesting tie-ins of the mega events in the last couple years. He was also at the helm of the truly outstanding Stormwatch PhD. Now, in addition to other projects, Gage is set to take us back to Marvel's House of M. He's also going to be bringing The Man With No Name to American comics for the first time and is soon to be releasing a historical fiction original graphic novel co-written with his wife, Thruoni. Around Comics is happy to welcome... Christos Gage. I, I wanted to start off. Whenever you, uh, whenever you look at your bio, one of the first things that will will jump out at you whenever you're on your website is that while you were born here in the United States, you actually spent some of your childhood growing up in Greece. Uh, that's, can, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my dad was a reporter for the New York Times. Uh, he actually covered the mafia in the early 70s, and then uh, in the late 70s, he was made the Athens correspondent for the New York Times, so we moved there, and we're there for five years. Now, that's actually your your heritage, is that you are Greek, correct? Yeah, yes, my father was born there. Okay, so um, what ages were you were you living over there? Age, uh, I want to say about six to six to ten. Okay, so yeah, just just past your formative years, prime, prime comic reading years, as a matter of fact. And the funny thing is, and the way it worked there is, for whatever reason, DC didn't have distribution in Greece, or at least not near where I live. But Marvel did, and there was a, a big grocery store around the corner from my house. And once a month, not every week, but once a month, they would get a delivery of all, all the Marvel comics. I mean, there would always be like one or two missing, you know. So sometimes you would miss the second part of a continued story. 
but uh, once a month they'd get a delivery of all the Marvel comics, and I'd be there waiting for it, and I'd get them all. I was going to ask, how did you, because I know that you've been a comic fan for a long time, how you became a comic fan living living overseas. What were what were some of the comics that uh, of that time, whenever you were in Greece, that you read? Uh, let's see. I remember the John Byrne and Roger Stern run on Captain America. Um, X-Men, Days of Future Past was a, I mean, one of their first comics that really got me hooked. I think I actually started with 139. Uh, I mean, I, I started, the fir- one of the first comics I bought was Uncanny X-Men 107, which I still have, beat all to hell. Um, but I wasn't really a regular buyer until 139, and Days of Future Past, I think, made me a lifer in comics. And uh, what else was going on? Uh, the beginning of the John Byrne run on Fantastic Four, um, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, which was uh, John Romita Jr.'s early tenure on the title, I think. Um, it was around 212, 214, thereabouts. And you know, Marvel Two and One, Marvel Team Up, uh, and then I would I knew I knew kids who had you know I would like at the schoolyard buy old comics from other kids, and there's a there's a funny story like I talked to uh, I I was talking to Howard Shaken about living in Greece, and and back then we we went on a field trip once to the to the Parthenon, and back then you could actually like walk around the ruins like among the ruins. Now they won't let you touch them. Uh, but back then, you could actually saw him walking around the ruins of the Parthenon, and and Howard was like, "What? What's it like?" And I said, um, "I don't know. I was reading Marvel Team Up '65," and <laughs> he, he was like, "Oh, I don't don't tell me that. You're breaking my heart." And I, and I was like, "I can tell you, Spider-Man fought Captain Britain, and it was pretty awesome." Well, your your roots are in in Marvel comics because where you where you grew up or or spent a lot of, of time. Now you're going back to a kind of a kind of a new alternate universe with the House of M. Uh, tell us a little bit about House of M: New Avengers. Well, that's that's a lot of fun. It's a project that's reuniting me with Mike Perkins, who I worked with on Union Jack, and I just love Mike's stuff. I think he's a, a fantastic, fantastic artist. And he's just so versatile. He can do quiet scenes, character scenes. He can do action. He can do anything. And it just looks terrific. So I'm really thrilled to be working with him again. And beyond that, I think the idea is really cool because having read House of M, um, basically what happened is that the House of M trade paperbacks are still selling very well and especially doing well at libraries. And librarians had been contacting Marvel and saying, listen, our readers really love these books. Can you give us any more? So Marvel approached uh, me about doing something called House of M Avengers using Luke Cage's Band of Freedom Fighters. And my feeling was, as a reader, what I was most curious about from the House of M is, I know what it was like at the time, you know, we read all the other books, but how did how did that world, how did the alternate history differ from that of the mainstream Marvel Universe? Obviously, the big change was that in 1979, Magneto and his forces won the mutant human wars. So, okay, how did how did things change from there? And that's one of the main things we'll be exploring with this miniseries. It starts off with Luke Cage's origin, and um, which is similar to the one we know, but a little bit different. Like, for instance, the experiment that gave him his powers was designed to create super soldiers that could fight on the human side against the mutants. Hmm. Uh, and it starts with him and, and his journey back to the city where he grew up, seeing how it's changed, and then becoming a leader of a criminal organization, but not just like a... They start out, you know, pulling heists and that type of thing, but one of their big um, agendas is to make sure that 
humans who aren't mutants get justice in a world that's in which they're an oppressed minority. So somewhere along the way, they become they they grow from a criminal organization to a band of freedom fighters, and we see that evolution. Um, and it's it's just a lot of fun to work with alternate world versions of characters like Luke Cage and Hawkeye and the Punisher is in it, but this is a Punisher who was able to save his family from the mob assassins that killed them in, in the main Marvel universe. So we see how he's different and how he's the same. Um, and then I got to, you know, use Iron Fist and Moon Knight and Tigra and uh, villains like the Taskmaster and the Blob and uh, the Kingpin and his assassins, Bullseye, Electra. So, you know, just all kinds of fun. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, from a uh, just almost a fanboy perspective of here are a, a group of great characters that I don't have to be bogged down in continuity, and I can kind of reinvent them to do whatever I need for the story. That sounds exciting. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, ways of thinking, how would this person be different? How would they be the same? For instance, uh, using Shang-Chi, who is the leader of his own criminal organization, the Dragons, and in this world, he never found out that his father was a an evil criminal. He... His father was killed by Magneto, and Shang Chi to this day believes that he is a he was a great man, and he's trying to he's trying to rebuild his empire. So, unlike in our world where Shang Chi is a very spiritual, you know, positive, life affirming person, in this world he's very angry and and uh, hostile. And so, it's interesting to see how people are the same and how they're different. Uh, it's interesting because Marvel played around with the alternate universes, and obviously the ultimate universe is is its entire own thing. But it was always DC that had the alternate worlds to play around with, and, and I thought that created a lot of freedom for for writers. But it's 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 neat that that Marvel hasn't totally abandoned the House of M and, and are able to go back and tell some stories. Do you do you like the idea of Marvel having a you know, a, a multiverse? I think it's cool, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and they always, to an extent, have. It just wasn't framed that way. But the world of Days of Future Past and X-Men has had, uh, you know, has, has, has brought characters into the present-day Marvel Universe. Um, I mean, then over in a book like Exiles, which explores various alternate universes, I just think that in, over at Marvel, it was less codified in the sense that, you know, in DC, with DC, it was here's Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-S, Earth-X. And with Marvel, it was more like a particular storyline would visit an alternate world, and then if the fans liked it, maybe we would get some more stories with that alternate world. It was more freeform. Sure, it was, it was more, more ingrained into the DCU, where Marvel was always about that universe and that world, and that was a big draw, was how those characters interacted, how the Human Torch interacted with Spider-Man, etc. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of it, too, with DC is that they they literally in the Silver Age made their past the the golden age of their characters uh, another world. So actually, their history was rooted in an alternate world. So that that may be why it's um, why it was more what's the word I'm looking for more established at DC. How about uh, the Man with No Name series? That's a very exciting project uh, that I'm doing for Dynamite. Um, obviously, it's a, a legendary one of the all-time legendary characters. Uh, hasn't been. I believe there have been some European comics done as the Man with No Name, but years ago, he's never been shown in American comics. So it's a very exciting and also a very intimidating assignment, and that I'm, you know, really want to do justice to the character and, and give people a book that they can read and say, yeah, this is this is the character I know from the movies. So 
Um, the good news is I've completed the first script, and MGM liked it and approved it. They're the license holder, so that's a, good, a big first step. And uh, I believe it's going to be out in the winter, probably early 2008. Uh, one of the things I wanted to know about that that series, and, and I'm a fan of of the films, as our uh, my co-host on the show Sal is, is a huge fan of the Man with No Name, and and that that series of movies was so atmospheric and relied on you know the soundtrack that was yeah. that went along with it, and and the vistas you know visually. So I think visually you know comics can um, can pick that up, but just the entire atmosphere as a writer, how how do you approach that series and say we really need to nail the atmosphere of what these movies were? Yeah, well, it's it's tough. I mean, obviously, you don't have the the score, you don't have any of Cohen doing the the soundtrack, and you don't have Clint Eastwood's voice. But there are things you can do. I mean, this is not a a talky book. This is not a book where people talk a lot. There are a lot of silent panels. There are a lot of you know uh, wide angle establishing shots, and uh, you know. One of the one of the things that's very important is finding the exact right artist who can capture that type of thing. But just in terms of the scripting, you know, I mean, you, you watch these old movies. My wife and I were talking about it, and especially The Man with No Name and, and other movies like that that feature these great antiheroes. People hardly say anything in the movies. So, you know, it's the classic storytelling uh, rule of show, don't tell. And you really have to get it a lot across visually, which is good because comics is a visual medium. So, uh, you know, it's it's just a matter of working very hard and, and hopefully getting it right. <laughs> Have you guys announced an artist on that series yet? No. Um, in fact, I'm not entirely sure that one has been settled on. Uh, I saw Nick Barucci about a week, two weeks ago, and I don't think that one had been settled on yet, so... We shall see. All right. Well, looking forward to that. I uh, want to move over uh, uh, back into more mainstream comics. The uh, the recent series that you wrapped up at Wildstorm, uh, Stormwatch PhD, and mm-hmm. that was uh, that was a part of the Wildstorm relaunch, and one that that kind of came in under the radar. Anyone that read that book really seemed to enjoy it. How did you how did you approach uh, Stormwatch and and this new reformed and and very non superhero team? Well, it was it was it was a great uh, a great project to work on. A, a lot of fun. Uh, I worked out to work with Doug Mankey and Andy Smith, both of whom I think did terrific jobs. And where that basically came from was, in fact, I initially pitched it as not a Wildstorm universe book because I didn't think they would felt they would feel that it fit into the Wildstorm universe. But they really jumped on the idea. Ben Abernathy and, and Jim Lee and, and Scott Dunbar and Hank Snell and everybody really loved it. Um, and where it came from is. My wife, Ruth, and I, as you know, have written for Law & Order SBU, and we were in New York for the shooting of one of our episodes, and I was talking to some real New York cops who were there, and uh, I, I asked them, you know, when you look at the cop shows on TV, I mean, obviously, you guys don't solve a crime in an hour, but, you know, what are some of the biggest inaccuracies that you see in them? Because I wanted to try to avoid those, and it was interesting because the guy said to me, well, you see all these gadgets on TV, they use all this high tech, and you know this. They they, they use um, you know various devices that can detect decomposing bodies under the ground and things like that. And, and they said, you know, those that stuff may exist, but we can't afford any of it. We all operate under very tight budgets, and you know, we. I mean, a lot of them just recently got word processors and, and were able to switch from typewriters. So I thought that's really interesting. And what what would it be like for a superhero team that was operating? You know, we're used to seeing 
the Avengers or Batman, you know, billionaires who are able to finance planes and battle armor and everything else. And I thought, you know, what if there was a superhero team that was operating under a tight budget? So that's where that came from. There always seems to be at least one superhero in the group that's a billionaire. It's a nice plot device, and it makes perfect sense, but it's also kind of fun to go against the grain. So that's that's what I did with that with Stormwatch PhD. And another fun thing was taking characters who are usually supporting roles in comics, like, you know, the, the tech guy and the cop and the girlfriend and, and making them, putting them in the spotlight a little bit. All right. Well, it was it was a very fun series, and it ju- just wrapped up with issue twelve. So yeah, uh, so, and there's a there's an Armageddon issue, Stormwatch Armageddon, out in December, which is sort of an unofficial thirteenth issue. So anyone who was a fan of Stormwatch PhD should definitely pick that up. Going back over to to Marvel, you've been involved with uh, with the Annihilation Conquest, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to more than talk about uh, the Quasar series that you worked on. Talk about you know, Marvel's Marvel's cosmic universe. Were you a fan of of Marvel's cosmic? I was a fan, and it's it's interesting because even though I was a big fan of the books, um, my feeling as a writer was always that I wouldn't be able to write a cosmic story because. You know, I, I would think to myself, gosh, you know, how do you do that? The characters are so powerful and, you know, the landscape is so cosmic. How do you come up with a credible threat and how do you make them so that they can relate, the reader can relate to them? So when the Quasar job came up, it was, it was intimidating, but also something I wanted to do to challenge myself as a writer. And, you know, it's been very educational and enjoyable. And I've, I've been really happy to be a part of, of the, um, annihilation. Uh, and I also did a Terrax the Tamer story for, that was sort of an epilogue to the previous Annihilation. So both of those experiences have been great. Uh, and, you know, I'm glad to see those characters coming back. I mean, that's what, you know, Marvel does. It has these great characters, and, you know, they're always trying to find ways to get all of them back into the spotlight. You know, I mean, you look at the market now. A few years ago, if you would have said that Iron Fist would be one of Marvel's top titles mm-hmm. and that Thor would be one of their top-selling titles, people would have said you were crazy. Sure, it's it's uh, the this business kind of seems to go in these you know very cyclical movements where probably like the early two thousands it was it was the street level crime books that that were yeah. getting a lot of play and, and deservedly so they were great you know Bendis's yeah. Bendis's work on on Daredevil and you know and, and a lot of the other more street level kind of kind of brought a realism to comics that that had been lacking for a while and now I think that people their their appetites are are kind of you know whetted for 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 the cosmic, and you're seeing what DC is doing with you know Green Lantern and, and and that kind of stuff. They're just really fun, crazy sci-fi stories, and I think there's a yeah. place out there for that. I think so too, and I think that you know I think another thing that's happening too is even within the mainstream superhero stuff, I think the readers uh, are have more of an open mind, as it were, to different genres. So that I mean, yes, the superhero comics still dominate, but within that, people are more willing to accept a superhero comic that's sci-fi, you know, mm-hmm. that that has Quasar, but it takes place in space, and it's class, kind of classic space opera. Um, or, you know, a Western superhero like a Jonah Hex or, you know, Dynamite, they have the Lone Ranger or hopefully the Man with No Name. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think, that, I think that people are, you know, I think that that's been a, a positive step in terms of the widening of, of types of stories that, that people are willing to accept. 
in your time at Marvel and and you in in really a pretty a pretty short amount of time have, have spun some pretty good stories you've also been able to play with some of the some of the big characters in Marvel you you've written uh Captain America and Iron Man in the uh, the Casualties of War you you've done yeah. some stuff with you know, Hulk with the uh, World War Hulk has, has it been a lot of fun to to almost right out of the gate be able to play with with some of the with some of the bigger toys at Marvel Oh it's been great I mean you know, to, it's been a dream come true for me because, I mean, to have Andy Schmidt call me up and say, hey, how'd you like to write World War Hulk X-Men? And I said, sure, what, you know, what are, what's it going to be about? He said, you know, the Hulk fighting the X-Men for three issues. I said, what, what, which X-Men can I use? He said, pretty much all of them. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you dream about. You know, when I was a kid, I, could, I can't draw. I've never been able to draw, but my friend Sean and I would, would do these comics for each other with stick figures, you know, uh, and they would basically be fights, you know, Hulk versus uh, Hercules and, you know, just these big all-out fights, and now I get to write it for real and have these really talented artists draw it, and I get paid, and, <laughs> you know, people read it and seem to like it, so, I mean, it's, it's just terrific, and I, I, you're right, I have been lucky in that I've gotten to play with so many of the toys, as it were, um, it's funny because I, I read an interview with Brian Bendis where he said something that I think is true, and he said, when you first start getting work at Marvel as a writer, you really push hard to write as many of the, to play with as many of the toys as possible because you assume you're going to get fired at any second. <laughs> and before that happens, you want to try to get to play with all as many of the toys as you can. And, you know, I've really been lucky in that I, I've got to play with a lot of the toys and, you know, write characters I grew up loving from the Hulk to the X-Men to, you know, Luke Cage and Spider-Man and everybody else. Uh, so, you know, can't complain. And you have a graphic novel that is that is getting ready to be released. Can you tell us a little yes. bit about that? Yes, uh, Ruth, my wife Ruth and I are writing a, a gra- original graphic novel for Oni Press called The Line of Aurora, which is a historical epic in the vein of Braveheart. Uh, in that, in the sense that it's about an actual historical figure, part of a group of people called the Waldensians, who are my, who are my wife's ancestors, um, and a man named Joshua Janavel, who was one of them, and rose from being a simple peasant farmer to one of the greatest military technicians of all time, winning battles like five men versus 500 and, and six versus 600 and things like that. Um, and so it, but like Braveheart, the, the surviving historical records are fragmentary, so we're partially fictionalizing it. But it's a great, amazing story. Historical epic is a genre that we haven't worked in before. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just having a really, it's a, it's a passion project of ours something that we've wanted to do for a really long time and we're really happy to be doing it with Oni um, and Dean Tripp is going to be drawing it and he's terrific wow. and that'll be out I believe late 2008 well you mentioned that that you work with your with your wife as as a co-writer as a co-writer uh, how is that relationship does that uh, is does that make for for happy writing and happy marriage well it, it we've, I think we've worked it out pretty good um, and the thing you have to you have to do is not let the work stuff carry over into the marriage because you have to be able to be honest with each other about what you like and don't like about each other's writing, but you also can't take it personally or you'll get divorced. <laughs> so that, that, you know, that's something that we've learned to do, and I think it's been very rewarding. And then you're also working on, uh, on Armageddon with, uh, with Wildstorm? Yes, uh, Wildstorm Armageddon. It's a six-issue miniseries, although each issue kind of stands on its own, and it's it's a, it's a tribute to things like Days of Future Past. In each issue, a different Wildstorm character goes into a post-apocalyptic future, sees what's become of their 
friends, their allies, their enemies in their world, and hopefully find some information that can help them prevent it from happening. But like I've always said, what's fun about the Wildstorm universe is unlike the Marvel and DC universe, you, you can break the rules more. So whereas if this happened in Marvel or DC universe, you'd know that they would succeed in preventing Armageddon. You do not have such a guarantee in the Wildstorm universe. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's fun to be able to push the envelope. That's something you always feel with uh, with mainstream comics is that, you know, some way, somehow, Spider-Man's going to get out of it. And yeah. It's, well, it's, and at the end of the day, I mean, you really don't want to mess with, you know, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. I mean, you know, if you moved him to L.A., it wouldn't be Spider-Man anymore, you know. And if you took Batman, I mean, you know, with Batman, you can do something like No Man's Land, which lasts for about a year, but then you put Gotham City back the way it was. Because it's Gotham City. I mean, when you think of Batman, you think of Gotham City. I wouldn't want them to do anything too drastic. But with Wildstorm, the characters haven't been around for 60 or 70 years. They've been around for 10 or 15 years. So, you, you know, you can push the envelope a little more. Best place for people to uh, to find you on the uh, on the Internet? Yes, uh, com. And I've been I've been there all week, and there's <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff, uh, comics and TV and movies. But uh, but before I let you go, I have to ask you about a movie of yours that I haven't seen. But Jeremy uh-huh. Jeremy Hahn uh, highly highly suggests it. Should I run out and check out Teenage Caveman? Well, I will not be held responsible for for what happens to your psyche if you watch Teenage Caveman. Uh, Jeremy loves it. Phil Moto loves it. You know, when Ruth and I want to have a good time, we go on IMDb and look at the different customer reviews for Teenage Caveman, uh, which range from this movie rocks, but I don't know why, to this movie makes me want to die. So there, it's not, it, there's no middle ground. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre movie, um, intentionally so, and some people love it and some people will be scarred forever. So it kind of depends on how sick and twisted you are. If you, if you hang out with any drug addicts or, you know, uh, you know, criminals, maybe that, that those are the people you want to watch it with. <laughs> I'll start making calls. Well, Chris, <laughs> Christos, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure talking with you. And, uh, and, and I just ask that, uh, that you not be a stranger and, and come back and talk with us again soon. I absolutely will. And we'd certainly like to thank Christos for spending some time with us this evening. We'll make sure and update you anytime that we find out about new projects coming from the Gages. Now it's time to get you ready for the week ahead with new releases. We'll start this week with Chris Marshall of the Collected Comics Library. He's going to give us the heads up on everything that's new in trade paperbacks and collected editions. Okay, let's start out with DC Comics like we usually do. The Spirit Volume 1 hardcover, collecting Batman of the Spirit and the Spirit by Jeff Loeb and Darwin Cook. We also have another Spirit book out called The Best of the Spirit. This is the trade that reprints 22 classic Spirit stories from 1940 through 1950. A great way to get introduced to the Spirit if you guys are unfamiliar with them. We also have Justice League Elite Volume 2 the trade, Jack of Fables Volume 2, Jack of Hearts trade, Red Menace the trade, and also an interesting book called Countdown Special, The Flash 80-Page Giant. This is only for 5 bucks, and it collects Flash 106, 113, 155, and 174. Pretty cool little softcover collected edition this week. Let's move over to Marvel right now, and Black Panther 4, The Hard Way, The Trade, and She-Hulk Volume 5, Planet Without a Hulk Trade, is out this week. And a couple of books we're still waiting for. 
Marvel Masterworks Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. is expected to come out this Wednesday, along with Avengers Assemble Volume 5, the hardcover, Marvel Zombies, the covers, the hardcover, Legion of Monsters, the hardcover, Runaways Volume 7, Live Fast Digest, and also X-Factor Volume 3, the trade, collecting X-Factor 13 through 17. Over at Image, we got the art of Greg Capullo, the soft cover, for only 25 bucks, And from Top Shelf, Owly Volume 1, The Way Home, The Trade, that's only for 10 And Tomorrow's Publishing has Alter Ego, number 73, for $7. The last book on the list this week is Mad's Greatest Artist, the Completely Mad Don Martin from Mad's Greatest Artist series. This is a two-volume slipcase box set. It is a hardcover. It's for 150 bucks and it's 1,200 pages, and it is from Running Press Book Publishers. The tagline reads, For the first time ever, here's the complete collection of every piece of art Don Martin published in Mad throughout his extraordinary 30-year tenure from 1957 through 1987, with all of Martin's strips, covers, posters, and stickers presented in chronological order is nothing less than a masterpiece of comic genius. Complementing Martin's opus of published works are letters, sketches, and rare photos providing an in-depth look at the artist at work. Plus, scattered throughout are notes and original illustrations commissioned for this volume, paying tribute to the artist and penned by Mad's mostly notable personalities, Moore Drucker, Jack Davis, Sergio Argonis, and more. There are also notes from the likes of Jim Davis, who creates Garfield, and a foreword by Gary Larson, who, of course, did The Far Side. This is a really cool book, and I hope Running Press is going to be doing more of these. This is a great way to get uh, yourself familiar with Mad Magazine, especially all the early works. Don Martin is hilarious, and his cartooning is nothing short of genius. So definitely go check that book out when you get a chance. For Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, the Collected Comics Library Podcast. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library Podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklists of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Now let's take a look at some of the highlighted comics that will be coming out this Wednesday, October 24th. Uh, Normally this is a section that Sal does, but he is off for the weekend, so I will try and give you your future stacks fix for the week. Starting off with DC, we have Action Comics number 857. This is the third and final issue of the Bizarro World storyline that was written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner and uh, drawn fantastically by Eric Powell of The Goon, which if you're not familiar with The Goon, you definitely should be. Uh, Really enjoyed this series, but I'm glad it was kept at three. This is just about as much Bizarro talk as I can take in one storyline. Next up, we have the conclusion of Green Arrow Year One. This is a, a limited series that's been hit or miss with fans, almost from issue to issue. But I'm a huge fan of Andy Diggle and Jock, especially whenever they're teamed up together. Uh, we've talked about it on the show numerous times. If you haven't checked out The Losers uh, and you're a fan of uh, CIA, conspiracy theory type stories, this is definitely a book for you. As far as Green Arrow Year One goes, I think it's been a nice modernization of the Oliver Queen Green Arrow origin. Uh, I'm sure that this will come out in trade, so if you were holding off for that, uh, I would definitely suggest checking it out. Uh, next, Teen Titans number 52 is coming out this week. It's uh, written by Sean McKeever. I think people are uh, very happy with what he's doing over at DC. And we also have number two of eight of the Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters limited series. 
series written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. From Dynamite Entertainment this week comes Lone Ranger number 9. If you're a fan of westerns or a fan of the Lone Ranger, this series has in no way been a disappointment. If you're coming in a little bit late, the first uh, arc has been collected in trade, and I would definitely suggest picking it up. Uh, moving on to Image Comics, we have Casanova number 10. That's uh, the Matt Fraction and now Fabio Moon creative team on Casanova. Uh, finally, Crawl Space Triple X Zombies is coming out this week. This is the Rick Remender, Tony Moore, Kieran Dwyer zombie horror meets pornography comic. So sounds interesting and will be at the top of my stack this week. Uh, also coming out from Image Comics, we have Invincible number 46, Madame Mirage number 3, the Paul Denny comic from Image. And speaking of zombies and wrapping up our highlights of Image Comics this week, we have The Walking Dead number 43. And moving on to uh, Dark Horse Comics, and uh, keeping with a common theme, we have The Fear Agent, Last Goodbye, number four. This, of course, is Rick Remender and Tony Moore. And now moving over to The House of Ideas, coming out from Marvel, we have for the Scotty Young Completist, the Cable Deadpool, number 46. And Scotty did a uh, fantastic riff on the old classic Fantastic Four with uh, Deadpool involved. We also have Daredevil number 101, uh, Magician's Apprentice, which is drawn by Around Comics listener and all-around good guy Ryan Stegman. That's number 10 of 12 of that Dable Brothers venture. And finishing things off for Marvel this week, we have Ultimate Spider-Man number 115, What If Planet Hulk, and X-Men First Class Volume 2 number 5. And that'll take care of our future stacks or new release highlights or whatever the heck you want to call it. So I'll be back with those next week, so I hope you find some good stuff at the comic shop this week. Before you trip over your cape, Batman, riddle me this. There are three men in a boat with four cigarettes, but no matches. How do they manage to smoke? Hmm? <laughs> the Riddler. Good morning, and welcome to Instrument. Well, it's morning for me. It is 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Uh, there's no Packer game this week, so I'm not already sitting at a bar at 11 a.m. drinking Bloody Marys and reading the New York Times. I've managed to procrastinate so long that I have pretty much just about an hour to get this done. That's uh, my own fault. It's a weakness of mine where I start thinking about stuff. I can't get it done on time. Uh, huge on deadlines, though, so I often sort of crush myself and... and in a vice of worry. I've been sitting in front of the computer for about two hours there, uh, thinking about how I'm going to approach this. Uh, because I've been listening to the last couple of answers, and I'm like, how do, how do I get to be more conversational? You know, I've suggested looking at a picture of me. I suggested stripping to the waist and lighting a candle. Uh, I've decided that maybe I've put too much blame on you, the listener. And I'm going to take a little bit more responsibility on my own. And based on suggestion, from a listener, I'm going to do this one while looking into a mirror. Uh, there's immediately benefits and disadvantages to this. I can immediately tell I'm going to be interested in what I'm saying to myself because I love myself. Uh, I've got a bit of a big head. Uh, disadvantage, I'm handsome. Uh, if I was attracted, you know, if I was into men, I would go for someone who looked like me. 
uh, I already love myself physically and emotionally quite often, so I might get distracted while doing this. So please forgive me. I'll try and edit it out, but I'm just giving you my mindset as I approach this. Uh, I also have two housekeeping issues that I need to uh, discuss. First of all, uh, my very first answer man, where I asked a question involving a pocket universe superboy. I got it wrong. Well, I didn't get it wrong. I mean, I answered a question about a pocket universe and a superboy, but not the pocket universe and the pocket universe superboy that the individual is asking about. Uh, the one he was asking about was the one uh, created in the mid-80s, uh, well, in the after crisis to sort of explain how the Superboy was still involved with the Legion. I think Byrne had something to do with it. Uh, I haven't really looked it up um, and I haven't thought about it in a really long time. It was just sort of a, a way around a lot of the problems of changing the future. Uh, if you're interested in finding out about that, the character hasn't shown up in a really long time and it's frankly sort of confusing and baffling. So. Uh, that's probably why I haven't thought about it in a long time. But if you're interested, you can look it up. Second of all, uh, I asked for emails from Spider Baby asking to tell me where Spider Baby was. Uh, I would please ask people to stop sending them. Uh, the reason being is every single one I've received has had a pedophilia joke inside of it, and I'm concerned that there might be a government agency somewhere that's monitoring the fact that I'm receiving a tremendous amount of emails with the word babies and pedophilia in it. So would please ask just to refrain from sending any more. I don't want Chris Hansen showing up at my house uh, asking where I keep the spider babies. So there, house cleaning done. Let's move on to the questions. And this one is from a giant killer mantis who asks, why do we care so much about continuity, especially considering that superhero comics require a huge suspension of disbelief from the get-go? At this level, obsession with continuity seems unique to superhero comics. Drop some science, answer man. Well, uh, I've been thinking a little bit about this, and I think the reason why continuity matters to a lot of people is because it comes from the love that people have for certain stories and characters. Uh, to me, it's all based upon the fact that everyone has their favorite time period for a character. People have their favorite character. They have their favorite writers on characters. They have their favorite storylines involving characters. And just like when you go see a movie or read a book about characters you love, you sort of hold on to those characters and they stick with you for some reason. Now, the trick with continuity is because comic books come out regularly for years and years and years about the same characters who may or not may not be aging, you're sort of in a trap because you bring on new writers new artists, you can't expect them to just continue along the same storylines that other people have invented. You've brought these people in to be creative, and they're going to be creative, meaning they're going to do something different. Uh, so comics has that interesting dynamic going on. Uh, we love our comics, we love our stories, and we want more of those stories, but we want different stories too. You know, we just got the same stuff over and over again, we would complain about that, and people do complain about that. So I think continuity, I mean, it's just the twisted love, like many of our problems, twisted love for things. Uh, I think you can avoid it pretty easily, though. I mean, if you love comics, there's plenty of independent comics, graphic novels. I mean, even the big two put out books that aren't necessarily huge continuity, you know, traps. I mean, I'm thinking of books like uh, Jonah Hex, which I love, is a book that has, you know, doesn't really require any knowledge of any continuity. It's a lot of one-shot, 
you know, one-and-done stories. Uh, I'm thinking of X-Men First Class, which is a book I love, which is based upon taking what was awesome about the X-Men and taking it right back to the beginning. You don't need to know anything about the X-Men, and it's written in a very clever, fun way, so you grow to love the characters in a totally new way. I mean, I'm, I love the Iceman in that book more than probably any Iceman I've read in any other X-Book. Uh, so there's plenty of options. There's plenty of great uh, images putting out a ton of books. Uh, I mean, as books go along, obviously the indie ones, they sort of develop their own continuity as well, but I'm thinking of a book like Invincible, who... Uh, specifically came out with a special issue to get you caught up on what happens and uh, a lot of smart publishers put recaps in the beginning so there's ways to avoid the whole 40 years of continuity problem and also as a reader some people don't mind jumping into the middle of a story and having to go back and look for stuff I mean that's the type of reader I am uh, I know not everyone's like that but maybe you are and uh, maybe you can try out different things and not be so you know, intimidated by continuity, but I'm. I think it's just love, and sometimes love hurts, and that's all I got on continuity. But I also have a second bonus question from an S Young, who asks, "Do you love Super Walmart and hate Wes Anderson?" That's interesting. I hate Super Walmart, and I love Wes Anderson, and. That's the answer man for this week. Uh, as always, if you have a question for me, uh, send it to Tom at Around Comics. Try not to put pedophilia or babies in the uh, email at all. And I'll see you guys later. Bye. <laughs> there were three men in a boat with four cigarettes and no matches. How did they manage to smoke? They threw one cigarette overboard and made the boat a cigarette lighter. Correct, boy wonder. <laughs> Twice a month, John Mayo breaks down the sales numbers and market trends to give us a more informed idea of what's happening on the business side of comics. This week, John takes a look at the top 100 trade paperbacks. Here is a breakdown of the sales of the top 100 trades to retailers through Diamond during August 2007. Please note that these numbers are based on what's shipped to retailers and not based on sales to consumers. An estimated total of 240,000 trades are sold to retailers, which is up by 3,000 copies from the previous month of July and down by 29,000 copies from August 2006. This equates to an estimated value of $4,634,000 at full cover price, which is an increase of $268,000 from the previous month of July. DC Comics came in at 29.73% of the total sales for the top 100 trades in August, with 27 different items on the list. DC sales totaled to an estimated 71,000 copies. The top selling item for DC Comics was 100 Bullets Volume 11, Once Upon a Crime, in slot number 1, with an estimated 8,000 copies. This was up an estimated 1,000 copies from the previous volume. Marvel Comics had 34.9% of the total sales for the top 100 trades in August, with 33 different items on the list. Marvel sales were estimated at 84,000 copies to retailers. The top selling item for Marvel Comics was Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 17 Clone Saga in the second slot, with an estimated 7,700 copies, down approximately 100 copies from the previous volume. Image Comics accounted for 3.77% of the total sales of the top 100 trades in August and had five different items on the list. 
top-selling item for Image was Invincible Volume 3, Ultimate Collection, in slot 44 with an estimated 2,300 copies. One interesting move on the charts was New Avengers Volume 5, Civil War, in slot number 4 with an increase of 1,500 copies, which was the biggest increase in sales over the previous volume for the month, resulting in an estimated 6,500 copies sold. For Around Comics, this is John Mayo. John Mayo writes the Mayo Report 2708 Top Comics each month, which examines the sales estimates and market trends for comic book, graphic novels, and collected editions. He's also the host of the Comic Book Page podcast. You can find his article at comicbookresources.com and his podcast and sales estimates charts at comicbookpage.com. Around Comics is proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. For more information, visit www.heroinitiative.org or call 310-909-7809. If you've ever wanted to check out webcomics but just didn't know where to start, well, Jeremy Mullins is here to let you know about the best and brightest in webcomics. It's time again to take a look at the world of webcomics, and today I'd like to encourage everybody to check out Sinfest. It's an edgy, well-drawn strip that takes an irreverent look at religious themes and sex. It's published daily by Japanese-American cartoonist Tetsuya Aishida, and you can find it at Sinfest.net. Webcomics have a reputation for having some pretty janky artwork, and until the arrival of Sinfest in 2000, I really hadn't seen a high level of professional polish on a webcomic. But Sinfest is what I've always wished newspaper strips could be. Basically good looking, consistent with the art, and not so lame and milk toast with the subject matter. Sinfest walks, talks, and looks like a professional comic strip. But it definitely takes advantage of the freedoms afforded by the web to deliver edgier, smarter, and more daring content. Sinfest's main character is Slick, a self-styled adolescent pimp who's always trying to sell a soul for a good price. He appears to be a cross between Steve Dallas from Bloom County and Calvin from Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes. Other characters include Monique, the young hottie friend Slick's always angling for, Squiggly, Slick's chauvinist pig sidekick, and by pig, I mean like a real pig as in oink oink. God Almighty appears as this giant hand in the clouds, and he often uses silly looking hand puppets to mock the other characters. The devil plays the role Lucy had in Peanuts, but times ten. Seymour is a doughy-faced portrayal of all things Christian fundamentalist. There's Jesus too, and a little cloud-riding Buddha who chimes in as an alternative to the Judeo-Christian characters. Sinfest is smart, biting, and delivers commentary on contemporary issues of faith from like a young, notorious B.I.G. listening to street-level point of view. The art is outstanding. If you're a line-quality geek, or if you just want a good laugh you can forward on to your friends, point your browser to sinfest.net. I'd also like to take a second to thank Chris and Sal for all the hard work that they've done reformatting the show and the Around Comics website. And I'd like to thank all of you who've emailed me. For Around Comics, 
I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. From the bowels of hell to your bookshelf, the Teddy Scares return in a third all-new sad, viciously humorous volume. Teddy Scares Volume 3 includes the heartbreaking origin of Edwin Morose, the arrival of Eli Wretch, and Super Cyrus, the even stupider alter ego of Abnormal Cyrus. Based on the popular toy line and featuring art from some of the industry's most promising new and established talent, Teddy Scares Volume 3 is a must-have for any fan of dark humor. For previews of Teddy Scares Volume 3 and tons of other ape entertainment goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs this week. The big release this Tuesday is the Stanley Kubrick box set, which includes remastered versions of 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. Each movie gets the double disc treatment, and there's a full-length Kubrick documentary, too. A couple of classic foreign films out this week. The Battleship Potemkin, Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 epic, arrives in a swanky new edition. Remember that scene at the end of The Untouchables with the baby carriage in the stairs? Here's where De Palma ripped it off from. And if you're in the mood for something a little French, pick up the Criterion edition of Breathless, the 1961 Jean-Luc Godard flick that launched the New Wave movement and decades of pretentious film criticism. It's a really great movie, though, full of style and attitude, and Gene Seberg is one of the great movie babes of all time. Horror flicks out this week include Hostel, Part 2, the 20th anniversary edition of Hellraiser, Mr. Brooks, with Kevin Costner as a serial killer, and even scarier, Dane Cook as his fan, and the second box set collection of movies by Italian director Mario Baba. Finally, if you're desperate for something comic book related on DVD, pick up the new collection of Aquaman cartoons from the 1960s. Speaking as a former Aquaman writer, these shows were a huge influence on my work, especially the giant seahorses, and of course, Tusky the Walrus. This week's cult DVD pick is Hell's Highway, the true story of highway safety films. I'm not sure if they do it anymore, the school would probably be sued for abuse, but in days gone by, driver's ed classes would show movies with titles like Highways of Agony and Mechanized Death to Their Classes, trying to terrify the kids into driving safely with actual footage of gory highway accidents. Hell's Highway takes an in-depth look at the making of these high school horror films, interviewing the otherwise regular guys who used a police scanner and a movie camera to capture the gore. It's a grim but fascinating look at the forgotten side of high school history, and the double disc set also includes three complete driver's ed shorts and scenes from 15 others. The next time someone starts bragging about the weird horror movies they've got in your collection, pull your copy of Hell's Highway off the shelf and pop it in the DVD player. That should shut them up. That's the DVD Report, and I'm Will Pfeiffer for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpfeiffer.com.
starter. I need a couple A's for kids. I'm not an asshole. I'm just a little confused. Should I do and say what I want? You know what? I am too old to try to impress you or look cool by uh, having certain tastes and shit. You know, uh, it's this thing, right? You got to like the right movies. You got to like the right music, the right actors, the right directors, or else you're not in the know. You're not smart. You're not cool. Uh, I don't give a shit. I like what I like. Some of it's lame. Some of it kicks ass. But you know what? I like it all. I'm not a guy who equates popularity with suck, right? It's not, uh, oh, this guy was really good, and now he's on MTV. They suck. Uh, this was like a little independent movie. Now it's big time. It sucks. Uh, hey, shit is what it is. I like it or don't like it. I don't need you to think that I'm cool uh, by liking it. So I put together a little, uh, I don't know what you want to call this, a medley, uh, maybe, of things that I like and dislike, uh, regardless if it makes me look fucking cool. I think Ashton Kutcher is a pretty funny guy. I think Johnny Knoxville is fucking not. I think Seth Rogen is slightly overrated. I think She's All That is a great movie. I hate Bono and you two. They are not good. Yeah, you heard me. If you are 50 years old and balding, you should not call yourself the edge. You are no longer cool. Stop trying. Ugh, fucking you too. I hate Gus Van Zandt. I hate David Lynch. I think the ending of Preacher sucks. I hate movies with subtitles. I don't want to Why is this so cool to hate Michael Bay? The guy makes seven trillion dollars every time he turns the camera on. But I can't seem to find anybody who likes his movies. It's okay, some characters like mindless shit. Not every movie has to be filmed with an art school camcorder and have no plot to be good. Man, I like not hate Vin Diesel. I do hate most of his movies. I think Kelly Clarkson is actually a good singer. I like Nickelback. What? I didn't say that they were good. I just said that I liked them. Now bring it back. Why can't Radiohead die in a plane crash? I know what you're thinking. You just don't understand that band. Whatever. I just don't understand how that band has fans. I like Kevin Costner movies. Yes, even Waterworld and The Postman. I enjoy watching American Idol. I never found Army of Darkness all that funny. Everybody thought this guy was funny until everybody thought that this guy was funny and now everybody's like Fuck that guy! Yeah, yeah, you could go pretend to LOL at all your little Wes Anderson movies, cool guy. I did not laugh one time during Rushmore. I like serendipity. I like high fidelity. I love say anything. If there was a god, he would look like John Cusack holding up a boombox playing in your eyes. Well, he is. 
Felicity is one of my favorite TV shows. Big, cool, tough guys will not watch it. They think that they will grow a vagina if they like it. Someone once made fun of me for owning every season. I said, ha ha, that's funny, and then... Okay, that was a lie. But it is funny how they won't watch Felicity, but they own every issue of Wonder Woman. I do not think Watchmen is genius. I do think Watchmen is boring. Notting Hill is in my top 10 movies. I think Kid Rock is an idiot. I own all his albums and like them. I have never watched The Wizard of Oz while playing Pink Floyd's The Wall. Because I am not a 16-year-old burnout wearing a tie-dyed potleaf t-shirt bought from Spencer's. I hate Fred Durst. I do not hate Limp Bizkit. I like Ben Affleck. I wish there was a super Walmart every four blocks. Yeah, I know corporations are evil, but... She I own every season of the Gilmore Girls. I own every season of Desperate Housewives. I own every season of the O.C. If I have offended anyone, you should remind yourself that I'm just a guy bored enough to record myself bitching about things that don't really matter. P.S. The new format is sweet, so stop bitching! That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussion about the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comic Space. And if you like the show, you can leave a review at the iTunes Music Store. I want to thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again next Monday for another edition of the Comic Culture Podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. Oh, you got me.